chapter five of abraham lincoln a history volume six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. abraham lincoln a history volume six by john hay and john george nicolay chapter five signs of the times before enough time had elapsed to judge of the probable effect of lincoln's offer of compensation to the border states a new incident occurred which further complicated the president's dealings with the slavery question about the middle of may he was surprised to learn from the newspapers that general david hunter whom he had recently sent to command the department of the south had issued an order of military emancipation reciting that the department of the south was under martial law the order declared slavery and martial law in a free country are altogether incompatible the persons in these three states georgia florida and south carolina heretofore held as slaves are therefore declared forever free so far as can be judged general hunter was moved to this step by what seemed to him the requirements of his new surroundings and the simple dictates of natural justice he was a warm personal and political friend of president lincoln was entirely free from motives of selfish ambition and was not a man who would suffer himself to be made the instrument of a political combination of strong anti-slavery convictions his sense of duty in the service of the union was as single-hearted and as sacred as that of a crusader sent to rescue the holy sepulchre from the infidel in his eyes rebellion and slavery were intertwined abominations to be struck and conquered simultaneously when he took command of the department of the south he found himself surrounded by new conditions the capture of port royal in the preceding november had been followed by the flight of the whole white population leaving the entire coast from north edisto river to warsaw sound a distance of sixty or seventy miles in the hands of the captors this was the region of the famous sea island cotton plantations in which the slaves outnumbered the whites nearly five to one in their sudden flight the whites were compelled to abandon their slaves and a large negro population thus fell gradually to the care and protection of the union army the exercise of common humanity forced the military administration of the department beyond mere warlike objects the commander general thomas w sherman issued an address to the white inhabitants inviting them to return and reoccupy their lands and homes and continue their peaceful vocations under the auspices and protection of the government of the united states except in a very few instances the friendly invitation was defiantly refused they not only preferred ruin and exile but did such mischief as lay in their power by ordering their cotton to be burned and circulating among the blacks the statement that the yankees would seize them and sell them into slavery in cuba such was the distrust excited by the falsehood that a month after the capture of port royal but about three hundred and twenty blacks had ventured into sherman's camps 
nearly all these were decrepit or were women and children there being only sixty able-bodied men among them for a while the slaves made the most of their abrupt holiday but their scanty clothing wore out the small stock of provisions on the plantations became exhausted at the time of their master's flight much of the cotton crop was still in the fields in the increasing demand for this product it became an object for the government to collect and preserve what was left and this work begun under the joint orders of the war and treasury departments set on foot the first organization of the colored population for labor and government military orders divided the country into districts with agents to superintend the plantations to enroll and organize the blacks into working parties to furnish them necessary food and clothing and to pay them for their labor private philanthropy also gave timely and valuable assistance relief societies organized in boston new york and philadelphia collected funds and employed teachers some fifty of whom reached beaufort the ninth of march eighteen sixty two and began a much-needed work of combined encouragement guardianship and instruction thus replacing the elements of social government which the slaves had lost by the withdrawal of their masters and mistresses the control of the captured and abandoned cotton and other property fell to the treasury department and in this connection secretary chase at the president's request gave the educational enterprise his official sanction and supervision later on the war department assumed and continued the work compelled from the first to rely upon contrabands for information and assistance and to a large extent for military labor it gave them in return not only wages for the actual service performed but necessary food and shelter for the destitute and with the return of the spring season furnished them so far as possible seed and implements of husbandry and encouraged them to renew their accustomed labor in the gardens and fields of the abandoned plantations in order to provide for or at least contribute to their own maintenance under this treatment confidence was quickly established meanwhile by the military occupation of additional territory the number of blacks within the union lines had increased in two months from three hundred and twenty to over nine thousand when general hunter took command of the department of the south this industrial and educational organization of the blacks was just beginning military usefulness was of the first importance in his eyes particularly as his forces were insufficient for offensive movements it was not unnatural that seeing the large colored population within his lines much of it unemployed his thoughts should turn to the idea of organizing arming and training regiments of colored soldiers and assuming that the instructions of the war department conferred the necessary authority he began the experiment without delay it was amid all these conditions which at that time did not exist elsewhere that general hunter issued the already recited order announcing that slavery and martial law were incompatible and declaring free all slaves in his department the presence of the union army had visibly created a new order of things and he doubtless felt it a duty to proclaim officially what practically had come to pass 
the mails from the department of the south could only come by sea hence a week elapsed after the promulgation of hunter's order before knowledge of it came to the president through its publication in the new york journals the usual acrimonious comments immediately followed radicals approved it democrats and conservatives denounced it and the president was assailed for inaction on the one hand and for treachery on the other lincoln's own judgment of the act was definite and prompt no commanding general shall do such a thing upon my responsibility without consulting me he wrote in answer to a note from chase who wished to the order to stand three days later may nineteen eighteen sixty two the president published a proclamation reciting that the government had no knowledge or part in the issuing of hunter's order of emancipation that neither hunter nor any other person had been authorized to declare free the slaves of any state and that his order in that respect was altogether void the president continued i further make it known that whether it be competent for me as commander-in-chief of the army and navy to declare the slaves of any state or states free and whether at any time in any case it shall have become a necessity indispensable to the maintenance of the government to exercise such a supposed power are questions which under my responsibility i reserve to myself and which i cannot feel justified in leaving to the decision of commanders in the field these are totally different questions from those of police regulations in the armies and camps while the president thus drew a sharp distinction between the limited authority of commanders in the field and the full reservoir of executive powers in his own hands for future contingencies he utilized the occasion for a forcible admonition to the border slave states reminding them that he by recommendation and congress by joint resolution had made them a formal tender and pledge of payment for their slaves if they would voluntarily abolish the institution he counseled them in words of parental wisdom and affection not to neglect this opportunity of financial security for themselves and patriotic benefit to their country he said to the people of those states i now earnestly appeal i do not argue i beseech you to make the arguments for yourselves you cannot if you would be blind to the signs of the times i beg of you a calm and enlarged consideration of them ranging if it may be far above personal and partisan politics this proposal makes common cause for a common object casting no reproaches upon any it acts not the pharisee the change it contemplates would come gently as the dews of heaven not rending or wrecking anything will you not embrace it so much good has not been done by one effort in all past time as in the providence of god it is now your high privilege to do may the vast future not have to lament that you have neglected it the signs of the times were indeed multiplying to a degree that ought to have attracted the notice of the border states even without the pointing finger of the president how far the presence of the confederate armies embodying a compact pro-slavery sentiment had up to that time interfered locally with the relations of master and slave we have no means of knowing we do know that before the end of the rebellion the conditions of war military necessity brought even the rebel government 
and the unconquered slave communities to the verge of emancipation and the general military employment of the blacks but northern armies embodying a compact anti-slavery sentiment stationed or moving in slave communities acted on the institution as a disturbing relaxing and disintegrating force constant in operation which no vigilance could shut out and no regulations could remedy whether in kentucky or virginia missouri or mississippi the slave gave the union soldiers his sympathy and his help while for services rendered and still more for services expected the soldiers returned friendship and protection finding no end of pretext to evade any general orders to the contrary from the army this feeling communicated itself sometimes directly to congress sometimes to the soldiers northern home from which it was in turn reflected upon that body the anti-slavery feeling at the north excited by the ten years political contention intensified by the outbreak of rebellion was thus fed and stimulated and grew with every day's duration of the war conservative opinion could not defend a system that had wrought the convulsion and disaster through which the nation was struggling radical opinion lost no opportunity to denounce it and attack its vulnerable points of the operations of this sentiment the debates and enactments of congress afford an approximate measure during the long session from december to eighteen sixty one to july seventeen eighteen sixty two the subject seemed to touch every topic at some point while the affirmative propositions of which slavery was the central and vital object were of themselves sufficiently numerous to absorb a large share of the discussions leaving out of view the many resolutions and bills which received only passing attention or which were at once rejected this second session of the thirty-seventh congress perfected and enacted a series of anti-slavery measures which amounted to a complete reversal of the policy of the general government at the date of the president's proclamation quoted above calling attention to the signs of the times only a portion of these measures had reached final enactment but the drift and portent of their coming was unmistakable in the restricted limits of these pages it is impossible to pass them in review separately or chronologically nor does the date of their passage and approval always indicate the relation in which they engrossed the attention of congress the consideration of the general subject was we may almost say continuous and the reader will obtain a better idea of their cumulative force and value from a generalized abstract showing the importance and scope of the several acts and sections as related to each other first one of the earliest forms of the discussion arose upon the constantly recurring question of returning the slave-owners such runaways as sought the protection of the union camps and regarding which various commanders had issued such different and contradictory orders it has been stated that the president left his officers full discretion on this point because it fell within the necessities of camp and police regulations the somewhat harsh and arbitrary order number three issued by general halleck in missouri provoked widespread comment and indignation 
and though the general insisted that the spirit of the order was purely military and not political it undoubtedly hastened and intensified congressional action by an act approved march thirteenth eighteen sixty two a new article of war was added to the army regulations which enjoined under usual penalties that all officers or persons in the military or naval service of the united states are prohibited from employing any of the forces under their respective commands for the purpose of returning fugitives from service or labor who may have escaped etc later section ten of the confiscation act was virtually an amendment of the fugitive slave law providing that the claimant might not use its authority until he had taken an oath of allegiance and prohibiting any person in the army or navy from surrendering a fugitive slave or presuming to decide the validity of the owner's claim second no less to fulfil the dictates of propriety and justice than for its salutary influence on the opinion of foreign nations the annual message of the president had recommended a recognition of the independence and sovereignty of haiti and liberia and the appointment of diplomatic representatives to those new states this was duly authorized by an act approved june five eighteen sixty two similar reasons also secured the passage of an act to carry into effect the treaty between the united states and her britannic majesty for the suppression of the african slave trade approved july eleventh eighteen sixty two that this action betokened more than mere hollow profession and sentiment is evinced by the fact that under the prosecution of the government the slave trader nathaniel p gordon was convicted and hanged in new york on the twenty first of february eighteen sixty two this being the first execution for such crime under the laws of the united states after their enforcement had been neglected and their extreme penalty defied for forty years third the next marked feature of congressional anti-slavery enactment was one which in a period of peace would have signalized the culmination of a great party triumph and taken its place as a distinctive political landmark now however in the clash and turmoil of war it was disposed of not so much in the light of party conquest as the simple necessary registration of accomplished facts wrought beyond recall by passing events recognized by public opinion and requiring only the formality of parliamentary attestation its title was an act to secure freedom to all persons within the territories of the united states approved june nineteenth eighteen sixty two this was the realization of the purpose which had called the republican party into being namely the restoration of the missouri compromise its extension and application to all territories of the united states and as a logical result the rejection and condemnation of the pro-slavery doctrines of the dred scott decision the demand for a congressional slave code and the subversive property theory of jefferson davis these were the issues which had caused the six years political contention between the north and the south and upon its defeat at the ballot-box by the election of president lincoln the south had appealed to the sword fourth still advancing another step in the prevalent anti-slavery progress we come to the policy of compensated emancipation so strenuously urged by the president 
action on this point has already been described namely the joint resolution of congress approved april tenth eighteen sixty two virtually pledging the aid of the government to any state which would adopt it and the act approved april sixteenth eighteen sixty two with its amendments actually abolishing slavery in the district of columbia with compensation to owners the earnestness of congress in this reform is marked by the additional step that under acts approved may twenty one and july eleventh eighteen sixty two certain provisions were made for the education of colored children in the cities of washington and georgetown district of columbia fifth by far the most important of all the anti-slavery laws of this period both in scope and purpose was a new confiscation act perfected after much deliberation passed at the close of the session and approved by the president july seventeenth eighteen sixty two the act of august sixth eighteen sixty one only went to the extent of making free the slaves actually employed in rebel military service the new law undertook to deal more generally with the subject and indeed extended its provisions beyond the mere idea of confiscation while other subjects were included its spirit and object would have been better expressed by the title of an act to destroy slavery under the powers of war in addition to other penalties for treason or rebellion it declared that slaves of persons guilty and convicted of these crimes should be made free that slaves of rebels escaping and taking refuge within the army lines slaves captured from rebels or deserted by them and coming under the control of the united states government and slaves of rebels found in any place occupied by rebel forces and afterwards occupied by the union army should all be deemed captives of war and be forever free sixth coupled with the foregoing sweeping provisions intended to destroy title in slave property as a punishment for treason and rebellion were other provisions which under guarded phraseology looked to the active organized employment of slaves as a substantial military force which military service should in its turn also in specified cases work in franchisement from bondage thus in certain amendments of the militia laws it was enacted that the president might enroll and employ contrabands in such camp labor or military service as they were fitted for and that their wives mothers and children if they belonged to armed rebels should become free by virtue of such service section eleven of the confiscation act however conferred a still broader authority upon the government for this object it provided that the president of the united states is authorized to employ as many persons of african descent as he may deem necessary and proper for the suppression of this rebellion and for this purpose he may organize and use them in such manner as he may judge best for the public welfare this section allowed a latitude of construction which permitted the organization of a few of the earliest regiments of colored soldiers in tracing the anti-slavery policy of president lincoln his opinions upon some of the prominent features of these laws become of special interest he followed the discussion and perfecting of the confiscation act with careful attention and as it neared its passage prepared a veto message pointing out several serious defects which congress hastily remedied in anticipation by an explanatory 
joint resolution when the bill and resolution were submitted to him he signed both as being substantially a single act and to place himself right upon the record transmitted with his notice of approval a copy of the draft of his intended veto message the constitutional objection and the imperfections of detail in the original bill do not require mention here but his views on emancipation and the military employment of slaves may not be omitted there is much in the bill to which i perceive no objection it is wholly prospective and touches neither person nor property of any loyal citizen in which particulars it is just and proper it is also provided that the slaves of persons convicted under these sections shall be free i think there is an unfortunate form of expression rather than a substantial objection in this it is startling to say that congress can free a slave within a state and yet if it were said the ownership of the slave had first been transferred to the nation and that congress had then liberated him the difficulty would at once vanish and this is the real case the traitor against the general government forfeits his slave at least as justly as he does any other property and he forfeits both to the government against which he offends the government so far as there can be ownership thus owns the forfeited slaves and the question for congress in regard to them is shall they be made free or be sold to new masters i perceive no objection to congress deciding in advance that they shall be free to the high honor of kentucky as i am informed she has been the owner of some slaves by esquite and has sold none but liberated all i hope the same is true of some other states indeed i do not believe it would be physically possible for the general government to return persons so circumstanced to actual slavery i believe there would be physical resistance to it which could neither be turned aside by argument nor driven away by force in this view i have no objection to this feature of the bill the eleventh section simply assumes to confer discretionary powers upon the executive without the law i have no hesitation to go as far in the direction indicated as i may at any time deem expedient and i am ready to say now i think it is proper for our military commanders to employ as laborers as many persons of african descent as can be used to advantage the number and variety of anti-slavery provisions cited above show how vulnerable was the peculiar institution in a state of war and demonstrate again the folly of the slaveholders appeal to arms all the penalties therein prescribed were clearly justifiable by the war powers of the nation and sustained by military necessity so far the laws had not touched a single right of a loyal slaveholder in a slave state either within or without the territory held by confederate arms but day by day it became manifest that the whole slave system was so ramified and intertwined with political and social conditions in slave states both loyal and disloyal that it must eventually stand or fall in mass in short the proof was more absolute in war than in peace that slavery was purely the creature of positive law in theory and of universal police regulations unremittingly enforced in practice 
it must not be supposed that the discussion and enactment of these measures proceeded without decided opposition the three factions of which congress was composed maintained the same relative position on these topics that they had occupied since the beginning of the rebellion the bulk of the resistance was furnished by the democratic members who while as a rule they condemned the rebellion reiterated their previous accusations that the republican party had provoked it now again at every anti-slavery proposition no matter how necessary or justifiable they charged that it was a violation of express or implied political faith and a stumbling-block to reconciliation which against the plainest evidences they assumed to be still possible in a hopeless minority and with no chance to effect legislation affirmatively even by indirection they yet maintained the attitude of an ill-natured opposition yielding assent only to the most necessary war measures while with sophistical and irritating criticism they were industriously undermining public confidence in the president and his adherents by every party and parliamentary device they could invent there is little doubt that this action of the democrats in congress in addition to its other pernicious effects served to render the border state delegations more stubborn and intractable against making any concessions toward the liberal and reformatory policy which president lincoln so strongly urged the statesmen and politicians of the border slave states were quick enough to perceive the danger to their whole slave system but not resolute enough to prepare to meet and endure its removal and accept a money equivalent in exchange against evidence and conviction they clung tenaciously to the idea that the war ought to be prosecuted without damage to slavery and their representatives and senators in congress with a very few brave exceptions resisted from first to last all anti-slavery enactments we may admit that in this course they represented truly the majority feeling and will of their several constituencies but such an admission is fatal to any claim on their part to political foresight or leadership indeed one of the noticeable and lamentable features of the earlier stages of the rebellion was the sudden loss of power among border state leaders both at home and in congress we can now see that their weakness resulted unavoidably from their defensive position during the secession stage they only ventured to act defensively against that initial heresy and as a rule the offensive and unscrupulous conspirators kept the advantage of an aggressive initiative now in the new stage of anti-slavery reaction they were again merely on the defensive and under the disadvantage which that attitude always brings with it in congress as a faction they were sadly diminished in numbers and shorn of personal prestige they could count only a single conspicuous representative the venerable john j crittenden but burdened with the weight of years and hedged by the tangles and pitfalls of his conservative obligations he was timid spiritless despondent the record of the border state delegations therefore during this strong anti-slavery movement of congressional enactment is simply one of protests excuses appeals and direful prophecies against them the positive affirmative progress of anti-slavery sentiment gathered force and volume from every quarter 
whatever the momentary or individual outcry it was easy to perceive that every anti-slavery speech resolution vote or law received quick sustaining acceptance from public sentiment in the north and from the fighting union armies in the south the republican majority in congress noted and responded to these symptoms of approval and the radical leaders in that body were constantly prompted by them to more advanced demands and votes anti-slavery opinion in congress not only had the advantage of overpowering numbers but also of conspicuous ability a high average talent marked the republican membership which as a rule spoke and voted for the before-mentioned anti-slavery measures while among those whose zeal gave them especial prominence in these debates the names of charles sumner in the senate and of thaddeus stevens and owen lovejoy in the house need only be mentioned to show what high qualities of zeal and talent pursued the peculiar institution with unrelenting warfare to the rebellious south to the loyal population of the border slave states and to the extreme conservatism of the north particularly that faction represented by democratic members of congress president lincoln's proposal of gradual compensated abolishment doubtless seemed a remarkable if not a dangerous innovation upon the practical politics of half a century but this conservatism failed to comprehend the mighty sweep and power of the revolution of opinion which slavery had put in motion by its needless appeal to arms in point of fact the president stood sagaciously midway between headlong reform and blind reaction his steady cautious direction and control of the average public sentiment of the country alike held back rash experiment and spurred lagging opinion congress with a strong republican majority in both branches was stirred by hot debate on the new issues the indirect influence of the executive was much greater than in times of peace a reckless president could have done infinite damage to the delicate structure of constitutional government as it was anti-slavery resentment was restrained and confined to such changes of legislation as were plainly necessary to vindicate the constitution laws and traditions which the rebellion had wantonly violated but these were sufficiently numerous and pointed to mark a profound transformation of public policy in little more than a year under the occasion and spur which the rebellion furnished a twelvemonth wrought that which had not been dreamed of in a decade or which would otherwise have been scarcely possible to achieve in a century four months had now elapsed since president lincoln proposed and congress sanctioned the policy of compensated emancipation in the border slave states except in its indirect influence upon public opinion no definite result had as yet attended the proposal great fluctuations had occurred in the war and great strides had been made in legislation but the tendency so far had been rather to complicate than simplify the political situation to exasperate rather than appease contending factions and conflicting opinions this condition of things while it might have endured for a while could not prolong itself indefinitely little by little the war was draining the life-blood of the republic however effectually the smoke and dust of the conflict might shut the view from the general eye or however flippantly small politicians might hide the question under the heat and invective of factional quarrel 
president lincoln looking to the future saw that to replenish the waste of armies and maintain a compact popular support the north must be united in a sentiment and policy affording a plain practical aim and solution both political and military the policy he decided upon was not yet ripe for announcement but the time had arrived to prepare the way for its avowal and acceptance as the next proper step in such a preparation the president on the twelfth of july eighteen sixty two again convened the border state delegations at the executive mansion and read to them the following carefully prepared second appeal to accept compensation for slaves in their respective states gentlemen after the adjournment of congress now very near i shall have no opportunity of seeing you for several months believing that you of the border states hold more power for good than any other equal number of members i feel it a duty which i cannot justifiably waive to make this appeal to you i intend no reproach or complaint when i assure you that in my opinion if you all had voted for the resolution in the gradual emancipation message of last march the war would now be substantially ended and the plan therein proposed is yet one of the most potent and swift means of ending it let the states which are in rebellion see definitely and certainly that in no event will the states you represent ever join their proposed confederacy and they cannot much longer maintain the contest but you cannot divest them of their hope to ultimately have you with them so long as you show a determination to perpetuate the institution within your own states beat them at elections as you have overwhelmingly done and nothing daunted they still claim you as their own you and i know what the lever of their power is break that lever before their faces and they can shake you no more for ever most of you have treated me with kindness and consideration and i trust you will not now think i improperly touch what is exclusively your own when for the sake of the whole country i ask can you for your states do better than to take the course i urge discarding punctilio and maxims adapted to more manageable times and looking only to the unprecedentedly stern facts of our case can you do better in any possible event you prefer that the constitutional relation of the states to the nation shall be practically restored without disturbance of the institution and if this were done my whole duty in this respect under the constitution and my oath of office would be performed but it is not done and we are trying to accomplish it by war the incidents of the war cannot be avoided if the war continues long as it must if the object be not sooner attained the institution in your states will be extinguished by mere friction and abrasion by the mere incidents of the war it will be gone and you will have nothing valuable in lieu of it much of its value is gone already how much better for you and for your people to take the step which at once shortens the war and secures substantial compensation for that which is sure to be wholly lost in any other event how much better to thus save the money which else we sink forever in the war how much better to do it while we can lest the war ere long render us pecuniarily unable to do it how much better for you as seller and the nation as buyer to sell out and buy out that 
without which the war could never have been than to sink both the thing to be sold and the price of it in cutting one another's throats i do not speak of emancipation at once but of a decision at once to emancipate gradually room in south america for colonization can be obtained cheaply and in abundance and when numbers shall be large enough to be company and encouragement for one another the freed people will not be so reluctant to go i am pressed with a difficulty not yet mentioned one which threatens division among those who united are none too strong an instance of it is known to you general hunter is an honest man he was and i hope still is my friend i valued him none the less for his agreeing with me in the general wish that all men everywhere could be free he proclaimed all men free within certain states and i repudiated the proclamation he expected more good and less harm from the measure than i could believe would follow yet in repudiating it i gave dissatisfaction if not offence to many whose support the country cannot afford to lose and this is not the end of it the pressure in this direction is still upon me and is increasing by conceding what i now ask you can relieve me and much more can relieve the country in this important point upon these considerations i have again begged your attention to the message of march last before leaving the capital consider and discuss it among yourselves you are patriots and statesmen and as such i pray you consider this proposition and at the least commend it to the consideration of your states and people as you would perpetuate popular government for the best people in the world i beseech you that you do in no wise omit this our common country is in great peril demanding the loftiest views and boldest action to bring it speedy relief once relieved its form of government is saved to the world its beloved history and cherished memories are vindicated and its happy future fully assured and rendered inconceivably grand to you more than to any others the privilege is given to assure that happiness and swell that grandeur and to link your own names therewith for ever it is doubtful whether the president expected any more satisfactory result from this last appeal to the border state representatives than had attended his previous one he had had abundant occasion to observe their course in the congressional debates the opportunity had been long before them and they had not taken advantage of it amid the revolutionary impulse and action which were moving the whole country their inaction on this subject was equivalent to resistance this effort therefore like the former one proved barren most of them answered with a qualified refusal twenty of them signed a written reply on july fourteen which while it pledged an unchangeable continuance of their loyalty set forth a number of mixed and inconsequential reasons against adopting the president's recommendation they thought the project too expensive they said slavery was a right which they ought not to be asked to relinquish that the proposition had never been offered them in a tangible shape that a different policy had been announced at the beginning of the war that radical doctrines had been proclaimed and subversive measures proposed in congress in short it was a general plea for non-action seven others of their number drew up an address dissenting from the conservative views of the majority and promising that we will so far as may be in our power ask the people of the border states calmly deliberately and fairly to consider your 
recommendations two others wrote separate replies in the same spirit but with only a minority to urge the proposition upon their people it was plain from the first that no hope of success could be entertained End of chapter five